Coming up, a conversation with Sally Clark, candidate for Colorado Springs mayor. This is 6035 Media. Casting an informed vote is your duty as a citizen. I'm Brian Grossman, executive editor of 6035. And I'm Shelley Rohr, spokesperson for the League of Women Voters at the Pikes Peak region. We're teaming up to bring you conversations with the candidates in the April 2023 Colorado Springs City election. So this interview is both an episode of the new 6035 Vote podcast. And the League's Making Democracy Work podcast. So let's get to it. Sally, you want to get us started and just tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're running? Well, thank you very much, Shelley and Brian. It's nice to be here today. Um, I'll just tell you a little bit about myself, how I accidentally got into politics. I'm a small business owner. I've been doing that for 36 years, going on 37 in June. And um, one day I ended up working with um, my fellow innkeepers and all of a sudden we heard that there was going to be a fire station closed around the corner and all of a sudden I became the spokesperson for the Save Fire Station 3 campaign. So through that sort of acrimonial debate um, I came to find out that I just figured that if I wanted to do a better job for the city that maybe I should just run for public office and that's what I did. And so my accidental step saving Fire Station 3 really threw me into uh, serving as a council person, then serving as a county commissioner. And then most recently, I was um, appointed to a position at the federal level working for the U.S. Department of Agriculture for Secretary Sonny Perdue, uh, running the rural development offices around Colorado for the state of Colorado. So what we did was essentially economic development water, wastewater, infrastructure projects, as well as affordable housing. And we had seven offices throughout the state. And then I came back here and uh, saw that the mayor's race was coming up and thought, you know what, I think I can use all of my experience and put this to work for the citizens of Colorado Springs. Great. Thank you. All right. Let's get into some specific questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where do you stand on the 128% water rule and for extending water and other utilities to flagpole annexed developments? So um, it's a complicated issue and water is always complicated. I worked a lot on the Southern Delivery Project when I was a city council member and then as a county commissioner uh, with the work that we did to establish the Fountain Creek Watershed. Um, And so through that, we were able to come to some agreement with Pueblo in order to get the new pipeline built, which was part of Southern Delivery System. As it stands today, um, I, I oppose what they're doing in terms of the ordinance, and I'll tell you why, because I think it's a knee-jerk reaction, and I really think that we need to spend some more time working alongside with the county commissioners looking at water from a regional perspective. And so in the first 90 days of taking office uh, in the mayor's office, I will put together a task force to look at this issue, to come up with more specifics as it's related to what is the right number or is that the appropriate number based on scientific data and information that we have. Um, You know, I hear different numbers coming around in terms of how much water we actually have. Some of this is predicated by the Colorado Water Compact, but I really think this needs a little bit more time so that there's not essentially um, one developer having the monopoly and really affecting our affordable housing. So it's very important, I think, we have more of a community discussion about this and bringing the right stakeholders to the table to figure out what is the right number and how do we do that and how do we deal with growth, whether it's new annexations or existing policies 
and growth, then those are, to me, are the, the top issues that we need to grapple with. But we need to do it in a thoughtful process, not just a knee jerk to essentially do something quickly that may not be in the best interest of the citizens. Thanks, Sally. Shelly? So my question also is about water. You kind of maybe have already answered this second part, which was the second is, should the city consider extending water and other utilities that are to subdivisions located outside the city that might never be annexed as part of being a regional water provider? That's the second part. But then we waste a lot of water in landscaping. 78% is done for whether that's the resort with the broken sprinkler system for a couple days or the golf course that needs that green pretty grass and is a realtor. I know curb appeal. So I understand why some of my neighbors have planted Kentucky bluegrass. It's pretty and green. Mm -hmm. Um, How can we do better there? Well, I think in in part answering that first question a little bit really moves directly into the second part of your question in terms of conservation and how we do a better job with that. I think as um, working with the utilities and the city in looking at what we require for commercial developments in terms of how we landscape and doing more xeriscaping as we go forward so that they're not such big water wasters, um, I think that's going to be an important part to look at as well in terms of what what's required for new development in terms of also encouraging people to do a better job of not wasting water. Um, When it relates to providing service outside of the city limits, it's always been the policy, and I was a utilities board member, it's always been a policy of the utilities not to essentially create too much need outside of the county and or outside of the city into the unincorporated areas. And I think We have to look at that, but again, I go back to creating a task force to look at how we manage our water systems, bringing those water districts to the table who may be pulling off of the aquifers, who may be, um, maybe we have some optional storage issues that uh, could be an option for Colorado Springs utilities versus reservoirs and looking to whether we can recharge those rechargeable aquifers. So it's, it's a complicated, it's really a complicated issue that can't be easily just defined quickly. But I do think that by creating this 90-day task force to really look at this, that we'll come up with some really great measures of going forward to maybe some changes in our ordinances, changes in our planning policies, uh, in the conservation areas, and then working with Colorado Springs Utilities to make sure that we're not overburdening our current uh, growth right now and not overgrowing in terms of what we actually have available. Right now we have around 20,000 acre feet of excess, but that could be used up fairly quickly with quite a few big developments. So, And there's not enough water to service all of Banning Lewis Ranch, which is already annexed into the city. But we can't hold water in abeyance either for just one developer that may develop in the future. So those are things I think that all have to be taken into account as we move forward with the discussion on growth and water resources. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sally, where do you stand on accessory dwelling units being allowed in single family residential areas? 
So I think that it offers, um, I think that there's good and bad with it. Um, I live in, an, in a neighborhood, an older neighborhood that um, is residential to R2 zone. We knew when we moved to our, our neighborhood that there would be a chance that a duplex could be next door, um, or we could do an accessory dwelling and have that available to us. It does allow for potentially for more affordable housing. Uh, but what we also see is people buying and, and doing those um, accessory dwelling units and then renting them out as Airbnbs so that um, they're not available for people to rent. And I think that's another piece of it that needs to be looked at in terms of are they rentals for um, long-term lodging or are they short-term rentals that people are just turning into essentially a small commercial property. Um, I think when you buy in a, in a residential zone, that's what you expect. Um, and I think they need to be taken into consideration one by one. In our neighborhood, we've seen a lot of scrape and builds where it's deteriorating our historic nature of the neighborhood. And that concerns me a little bit when um, builders come in or developers and they come in and they just scrape and then they build a duplex and then they get a zero lot line. So now you have um, essentially two different dwellings on two different properties where it was one property before. Um, so it can it can increase the density and it increases parking issues, especially in neighborhoods where there are no off-street par- parking. Um, I think that has to be done in the thoughtful way. And certainly the neighborhood has to be more involved and engaged in that. Thank you. Charlie? Um, along the, also along the lines of housing, we have an affordable housing crisis, affordable, sometimes also not attainable for some. Mm-hmm. How do you propose as mayor to address that issue? Well, I think that the, the affordable housing initiative and the coalition that's been put together, that's actually creating a new nonprofit to look at housing from a broader perspective. I think that that's a, a really good step forward in trying to coalesce some of the agencies that work on affordable housing. Uh, we may need to look at to see if the city has um, surplus land that could be used for affordable housing projects. I know the county commissioners also um, have on the tax roll some that sometimes don't pay their taxes. And so seeing if we can um, do those, be able to get those properties into the system um, and make them available for some of the nonprofits that might, might be able to do that. Um, I met with Habitat for Humanity recently. Part of the problem that it seems like we're running into with affordable housing and trying to build new housing is that um, – there's no real land banking ability for them to do to purchase quickly. So, for instance, with uh, like Homeward Pikes Peak that might come in and be able to purchase a property, it gets purchased before they can even offer on the property. And so, some ways we need to look at um, the new state ability that for affordable housing that passed recently on the ballot initiative to see what is going to come out of that to see if it will help us with that land banking piece to be able to buy more properties for affordable affordability and we have to better define what is affordable you know is it on the hud uh no more than 30 percent of your income should be spent essentially on your housing is are those the numbers that we want to use do we want what is the difference between attainable well it depends on how much you make and, and at the interest rates right now, it's very difficult for folks to buy. But I think everyone should have that American dream if they can. Um, I think the city can be, again, a convener. The, the um, 
when we look at the housing authority, you know, how have they stepped forward? What's what are the different discussions and what are some of the ideas that are coming out of both the private sector, how we can be more helpful in getting things through the planning process more quickly? Um, what is coming out of the nonprofit sector in terms of providing more affordable housing? When I was um, with USDA, that was one of our major functions was to do a lot of the self-help builds. Um, we did those over in rural, rural places in Colorado. Um, and I think that having my experience and understanding of affordable housing, it's mainly trying to figure out what we define and then how government can get out of the way so that some of these developments can take place, whether that's from the private sector or the nonprofit sector. Thank you. Uh, Sally, public safety question. Uh, Colorado Springs Police Department is anywhere from 50 to 100 mm -hmm. officers short of authorized strength, uh, all while we're breaking homicide records and traffic fatality records. What do we do about public safety and police in particular? Well, I think that the recruitment issue has become nationally, it's it's a challenge, not just here in Colorado Springs, it's all over the United States. Uh, some cities may be doing it better than we are. And I think we need to look at similar size cities to see how they're doing on their recruitment. Are they employing new techniques that have allowed the police department to fill those gaps? Um, the The number I got last week from um, from the chief was that we also lose about 9.5% of our um, current officers to either to essentially in in terms of attrition. Mm -hmm. So that could be the resignations or it could be retirements. Mm -hmm. So even with when you look at the numbers of about 821 that are approved in the budget, and then we turn around and and look at the numbers that we're losing just from retirements, yeah. Um, and that gap, as you said, Brian, between 50 and 70 um, officers on the on the street, then we you, you're never going to get there it, it, at that particular level because you can't catch up fast enough and get enough online to make up for then the attrition that you're seeing on the other end. So a couple things that I think would be helpful. First, I think that we should look at retention bonuses for those that want to stay and maybe some incentives if they recruit new recruits. Hmm. So if you're on the police force and you're able to bring in a new recruit, could we look at those kinds of incentives? And then looking at how we do a better job advertising our positions, um, making it attractive for them to move here, how we really work with them to make sure that we are being as proactive as possible of what's involved with the job, uh, looking at how Again, other cities may be doing it better in terms of their numbers because we'll never fill those gaps unless we come up with some new ideas. And I think that um, because the way I'm looking at it is from the outside looking in as not being entrenched in government at this point, that I'm really looking at new and fresh ideas to be able to recruit new while we keep keep the current ones that are really really giving back to our community. And I think there's also a concern nationally that we've seen about the, I think that, that the police officers feel like they're under a microscope at every turn. And um, 
I'm not saying that bad things don't happen. Um, I was a county commissioner. We defended deputies in the jail when when something happened Mm -hmm. to an inmate. On a regular basis, those things happen when you have folks behind bars. But at the same time, we're asking these folks to go out and put their lives on the line for us, and we need to back them up. One of the things that I think was a bad message that city council sent was the fact that when they voted to not support the firefighter Mm -hmm. who inadvertently and accidentally um, ran over and killed a homeless woman Mm -hmm. in a park, that it sends the wrong message that law enforcement shouldn't, that we don't have their backs. And I think that's important too, is to let them know that, you know, maybe at the end, it's not my job to be in the judicial system, but to make sure that they're defended ahead of time um, so that that then the information can come out later as to whether they're guilty or not, but sending the message that we do have your backs. They're in a very difficult position. Um, When we call 911, we're not necessarily uh, calling them because we just want to chat on the phone. Mm -hmm. We have an emergency situation, and we expect them to be there in a timely manner and potentially to put their lives on the line for us to be safe. And I think we need to help keep them safe as well. Um, So there's, I think, a lot of pieces in this that are very complex in terms of new recruitment. But I also think we also need to recruit the best that we can so that bad things don't happen as often when you recruit good people. Um, We have a great military presence here. That's a great place to be able to recruit from. Uh, And and I think we need to grow our own. We need to employ more educational opportunities for kids to learn more about law enforcement so that they can they may, might want a career in that and to look to where we can grow our own kids to want to be in law enforcement and public safety. And that might mean fire and police. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Shelly? How are we doing on time? We doing so okay? much time. Uh, okay, we, yeah, we're, we're good. All right. Awesome. <laughs> um, so one of the issues that police get called out for a lot is our homeless issue, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, how d- would you address that issue as mayor? Well, and and I wrote a blog on this on my website at electclark.com where you can go and and read really more details about what I think about this. But it is one of my top priorities um, is to really, I think that as the mayor, we can be, I can be tough and we can be compassionate and we can be innovative all at the same time uh, to enforce the laws that we have on the books, to look at ways to work together with all of the nonprofits and bring together as well the law enforcement. I mean, when you look at I, I kind of think of it as a um, maybe an Afghan and you start pulling the thread and it just keeps unraveling, but it never goes away. And so it's very complicated that you need to be able to bring in law enforcement, our medical providers, our mental health, behavioral health um, professionals, as well as the folks who are in the the world of the the homeless outreach, maybe that Springs Rescue Mission and Homeward Pikes Peak and the nonprofit agencies, Peak Vista, community health centers, all of these folks need to really be at the table to try and figure out what components we can take one bite at a time and then look at other communities that have done a good job in handling this issue maybe more effectively than we are because I don't want to be – Denver in four years. I think none of us wants to be the worst place to raise a family in four years. We want to be known as the best place to raise a family, and we want a safe community. And I think we also need to make sure 
that as we look at this from a perspective of our trails and open spaces, um, a lot of these folks are living along our waterways, which is not good for, for our health environment. And it's not really compassionate to them to have them in tents, especially in this cold weather that we've seen this year. Um, and then 157 fires were started in January, according to the fire department, uh, by those homeless camps. That's got to be, I have a neighbor up the street, we have a little park right up the street from us, Promontory Park, and a neighbor that lives right down this, the really down on the bluff from the park and there were fires going on when and she called 911 or she called the, the non-emergent number first and they said they couldn't help her because it was a weekend and so finally she got up she called 911 and they the fire department came um, but she was concerned about the homeless camp up the hill and that little park has a lot of vegetation and could potentially take out a lot of homes if it caught on fire. So I think that there's got to be, people are seeing it more and more in their neighborhoods. I've talked to people and families in Rustic Hills, in Briargate. Um, and so it's not just in the downtown area and along Monument Valley or, or Monument Valley Park or along Monument Creek or, or Fountain Creek. It's all over the city now. And we've really just got to get a handle on that and the trash. But we also have to look at what what's the compassionate piece. And by convening people together to talk about some of the solutions and looking to cities that have done a good job and maybe components like Austin has done a pretty good job, Salt Lake City, and not all these cities are exactly the same as us. So we'll have to look at different pieces, but I think we can put together our own model and really make a difference for the folks so that we can be compassionate at the same time we're tough, but also being innovative in how we handle the homeless population. Thank you. Uh, so we are running a little short on time, but um, we'll we'll do about three more questions here. These are complicated questions. They are, aren't they? I know. <laughs> they are. Uh, we're, we're doing okay. Um, so if you were elected mayor, do you foresee any sort of fee, new fees or tax increases? I actually don't. I think we're doing pretty well. I mean, we have our trails and open space tax, which I am supporting, by the way. I think it's important to continue the, the, the TOPS tax to provide for new um, for new acquisition as well as some maintenance. Um, I believe that the right now the um, tax that goes towards our roads is important and certainly the PPRTA, which um, I worked on during the first campaign for the Pikes Peak Rural Transportation Authority and then the city's uh, component too. And then, you know, we also have a lodging and auto rental tax. We have, you know, all these other, the, the um, SKIP, which essentially under the, um, the skip 01, which actually I was on city council when we passed the public safety sales tax. It's allowed us to build new fire stations and hire more firefighters and police. That is important. But I think that we've, I think we've kind of reached our limit right now. I'd like to see and take a look at the budget from an internal standpoint to see where we can have cost savings internally mm-hmm. and then go forward with taking a look at everything, but I really don't foresee that I would want to raise taxes beyond what they are today. Okay. Shelly, take it away. Cost savings. Yes. So a couple things. Um, One is a cost savings. One would not be, but um, thoughts on, these are league issues mainly for us, Mm -hmm. very selfish. Um, We don't endorse or support candidates, but there Mm -hmm. are issues that we do support or Mm -hmm. oppose. 
thought, what are your thoughts on moving our spring municipal elections, the one that you're currently involved in, mm-hmm. to the fall to help increase voter turnout and save the city $600,000 per election year? Um, when we do have it in those odd years. And then your thoughts on raising city council pay to a reasonable amount to be inclusive of others who don't have the ability to do that as their only job, like a retiree. Yeah, and, and having been a city council member and you know getting paid the, the whopping $6,250 a year, right. um, I kind of understand that because I think that in, in the size of our city, we, we expect full-time legislators at our, our city council but they're either retired folks or, as you pointed out, I think, Shelley, I think it is something that needs to take, we need to take a look at and maybe survey other cities our size to see how they're paying our city council. I think that that certainly needs a discussion with the community uh, because I, I think we ask a lot. And, and, and then our city council members also spend a lot of time on utilities board. I don't think that, that the average person really realizes how much time is spent. In fact, sometimes I remember when I was on council, I was spending more time on utilities business than the actually city council business. And where does that, you know, where does that fall? So I think that is something that should be looked at. As it relates to um, the election timeframe, it is a city charter and cities have their own charters and April elections is when we have it. Denver's going through their own as well. Um, according to their charter, so it would take a charter change. Um, What I'd like to really see, because our charter really hasn't been dusted off in a while, I think putting together a charter review committee would be very helpful in going forward and looking at all of these various things in terms of when we hold our elections, of whether council should be paid more, of whether there are other changes in the charter we might not even know. And I'm, I'm not, I don't remember when the last time we really updated our charter other than to put in the strong mayor form of government. But there may be some other things that come out of that discussion. So as mayor, I would put together a charter review committee to look at all of those items. Okay. Thank you. Thanks all for right. Being here. Uh, well, I think we're out of our questions. So if you want to take the last <laughs> two minutes to sort of wrap up and uh, let us know why we should vote for you. Well, you know, I this is a this is an amazing city. I love this. I mean, I love this community. I've lived here almost four decades. I'm not a native, although my dad was a Colorado native and um, grew up on a farm in Pueblo, Colorado. But I just I believe we have just such a, a resilient community. I've been through fires and floods and the things that we've had, and obviously we've all been through the the challenges of COVID and how we came out of that. And I just think that I have a lot to bring to the table. And and my unique perspective is that I've been a small business owner for a long time. I know how to write a paycheck and what it's like to manage employees and have all of those those things that come into play with the the burdens of government on local businesses. Secondly, I got into office accidentally through a neighborhood issue and was a neighborhood association president and then became a city council member and and then a county commissioner and then served at the federal level, really seeing all forms of government, sometimes parts that I didn't like and other times parts that I thought were great. 
And I think navigating, being able to navigate at all levels, whether that's state or federal government, will put me in a great position as mayor of this city to really fight for our community and make sure that we get our fair share. So I think that puts me in a unique perspective. But secondly, the reason I want to be elected is because in four to eight years, I want this to be the best city in America. I want it to be the best place to raise a family, to run a business, and to live. And in order to do that, um, I need to be in the mayor's seat. And I really think that we can do this together. I'm a big collaborator, and I'm big on transparency and accountability back to the taxpayers, the voters, the citizens, whether they're old or young, whether they're kids and wanting to be in their community centers and educate our kids and make sure that they have a strong life as adults. This is just the greatest community. So I hope that people will uh, look at my website at electclark.com and get more information and feel free to connect with me. My email on that site goes directly to me, as does that phone number. So I want to be accessible now, and I'm number one on the ballot, and you'll be number one on my list when I'm mayor. All right. Well, thank you, Sally. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Uh, You've been watching or listening to a joint podcast effort by 6035 Media and the League of Women Voters of the Pikes Peak Region. Be sure to follow Making Democracy Work and check out lwvppr.org for more information regarding our candidate forms in March. And check in with us at 6035 Vote to make sure your vote is an informed one. This podcast is produced by Dave Gardner. Video is edited by Nick Raven. I'm Brian Grossman, executive editor. And I'm Shelley Roars, spokesperson for the League of Women Voters at the Pikes Peak Region. See you next time. Hi, I'm Dave Gardner. And I'm Nick Raven. We're the podcast producers here at 6035 Media. 6035 Vote is just one of a growing family of hyperlocal podcasts that we're creating. And these are for you, someone who wants to engage fully in your community. We've got the 6035, which is a quick, lively recap of the top news stories of the week. It's my favorite. It's really great and often funny. I love having you as a guest, actually. I do, too. And then we have Hot Takes and Stirring Breaks, which is a potpourri of news and commentary about movies, gaming, TV, streaming, and just so much more. It's for youthful heart and... You know, that could be anyone, really. Yeah, I'm surprised I even really enjoy it because Nick hosts that and uh, he's he's witty. Well, and the cool thing is that you can watch both of these podcasts on YouTube. Or you can listen to them on the go in your favorite podcast app. And there's a couple more, uh, but you can also visit 6035media.org slash podcast to see them, browse them, sample them. And then subscribe to the ones that you like. And then subscribe to this YouTube channel. Yeah, and if you really love it all, like we do, uh, you Which can just you can just subscribe to the 6035 Podcast Network podcast, which is a conglomeration of all the episodes, all the brilliance and humor that emanates from the studio. Absolutely, and there's a lot of it. So like and subscribe today, and go listen to them all or watch them. What he said. Good. Thanks. Got it. That wasn't so painful.